perfectly round glasses, a two-piece suit, and her hair tied in a bob. This was the simple look of Hollywood's most decorated female star. But it wasn't her look that mattered, but the look she made for others. Welcome to this episode of Stanford and the 20th Century, the series that looks at history through the life and work of major global figures with a connection to the university. I'm Daniel Ray, and in this episode, we'll be exploring the life of Edith Head. Head earned a master's in Romance Languages at Stanford in 1920. Four years later, with no training in art, fashion or cinema, she started working at Paramount Studios as a sketcher. It's a great pleasure to be joined down the line by someone who knows Edith Head as well as anyone. Suze Clarson is an actor, director and artistic director who, for 15 years, has toured the United States with her one-woman show, Conversations with Edith Head. For a few hours each performance, and helped by an uncanny physical resemblance, she becomes Edith Head. Suze, or should I say Edith, welcome to the programme. Oh, it's a pleasure <laughs> to speak with you. It's great to have you, Suze. Uh, thank you. Um, I want to ask, first of all, Edith Head was not only a great professional, but also a great personality. Could you tell us your favorite anecdote of Edith Head? Well, I think how she got started. You know, when she was at Stanford, it was in Romance Languages. Mm. She had no background, as you said, in, in art. And she was teaching French at the very exclusive Hollywood School for Girls. And suddenly her duties were expanded to include the teaching of an art class. And I like to say in the show, there was an assumption that if you spoke French, you could paint. Ah, well, we, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Edith knew nothing, so she enrolled in some art classes. And then during her summer holiday, she needed a job, and she was looking through the classifieds. She saw an ad, wanted sketch artist, work for Cecil B. DeMille, write Howard Greer for an appointment. She knew Howard Greer was the chief designer at Paramount, but she was only studying seascapes, so she needed a portfolio. So what she did, she borrowed sketches from her classmates. Wow. So she had interior design, she had <laughs> landscape, she had portraits, she had all kinds of things. When she showed off her portfolio, Mr. Greer said he had never seen so much talent in any one portfolio. <laughs> <laughs> and that's how she originally got the job. But she was so smart. She was a sponge. She just absorbed everything and the greatness that was around her with Howard Greer and Travis Banton. Did they ever find out what she did? Oh, yeah. It, be, it became like a Hollywood legend of how she got it. You know, she really, she really studied. She dressed for the part. You know, she had been a teacher, but she transformed herself. You know, she wore a smock and a beret, and she looked like a designer. But all she was doing was handing pins to seamstress. <laughs> but she really studied how they created the signature looks for, at that time, Paramount's Three Graces, Marlena Dietrich, Carol Lombard, and Claudette Colbert. So before she designs anybody else's brand and their outfit, she's doing it for herself in, in her interview. She's creating a brand. That's exactly right. She's creating a look. You know, she lived by what Mae West said. When you find a magic that does something for you, honey, you stick with it and never change it. 
And that's why it's so fun when I'm doing the show. I mean, most people know I'm not Edith Head, <laughs> but there are a lot of people because she always, there were variations on a theme by she sort of looked the same over the years. And some people think it is Edith because. Wow. Yeah, which she would look great for what would she be close to 120. So (laughs) (laughs) exactly. Um, And and let's sketch a few details of Edith's childhood. Then, what was she like as a schoolgirl? Well, she really was somewhat creative, but she was always looking for her niche. Uh, She was an only child. And she grew up in this fly speck of a mining camp. Her stepfather was a mining engineer. It was called Searchlight Nevada. And she likes to say that, you know, growing up with scorpions and desert, you know, in the desert prepared me for handling all the snakes <laughs> I'd be working with in Hollywood. So she would take scraps of material and she would dress up animals. She adored animals. And that was early, you know, playing dolls, but she didn't have any brothers or sisters to do that with. So she really embraced her animals as that family. And she was always looking for something that she could excel at. Again, as I said, she was really, really, really smart. Um, and as she says, she was a better diplomat than a designer. She learned how to work with all types of people and to have a 60-year career in Hollywood, never having walked off a set in a huff, is uh, amazing. Yeah, extraordinary, extraordinary career. We'll get on to the longevity uh, later. Um, What were the expectations of a young woman in California in the 1910s, and how did she conform to them or not conform to them? Well, she conformed to it by being a teacher. You know, I, I think those were the acceptable jobs. And again, she fell into design. That was not her background at all. So she went through getting her master's, uh, as we uh, spoke about, and then went on to teach at the Bishop School in La Jolla and then at the Hollywood School for Girls. Those were acceptable jobs for women, mm-hmm. at, certainly at that time. And as you mentioned, she comes to Stanford in 1919 for her master's in French after a BA at Berkeley. What do we know about the young Edith and what she wanted for her life? I think she had a desire to, as I said, excel in mm-hmm. something. She tried other things. I mean, she would try different sports that didn't, really go that well and she just was was driven that way it wasn't driven to get married and have children it was driven to really succeed in a career and once she came into paramount and once she started studying with the greats howard greer and travis banton Mm -hmm. and learning the trade she realized it was something she could excel in that maybe she, as she says, wasn't the greatest designer in Hollywood, but there was no reason she couldn't be the most celebrated. And what were her challenges when she was beginning as this inexperienced young woman in what I suppose is a male, yeah, male dominated industry? (laughs) It was was what every woman faced. It was definitely, and in certain areas of Hollywood, all the studio bosses were Man, it was a good old boys club, certainly all the designers. 
heads of costume uh, departments at studios were all men. She was the first woman to ever, and it was because she played the game better than anyone. Mm -hmm. You know, she learned how to work with the studio bosses, to learn to work with every type of director, and certainly every type of star. And she kept their secrets. That's why there are not many kiss-and-tell books about Edith, because she never did. She said, I enjoy gossip from time to time, but I never repeat it. (laughs) (laughs) And what was her design method? She really looked at the script. She always went back to the text. She never felt that costumes should upstage what was happening in the story, that it must further the narrative. So her costumes were really chameleon. There are other designers you can really tell, either by the tailoring, that it was a a costume by Adrian. But with Edith, and she did everyone from Jerry Lewis to Grace Kelly. Yeah. So it really changed with the film. She understood how to work with the other creatives, with the production designers, uh, with certainly with the directors, and each one had a different style, like Alfred Hitchcock. Yes. Very detailed, very detailed, and he went down to the color that he wants, whereas others didn't care that much. Cecil B. DeMille didn't care that much about authenticity. Edith did, but she had to go along. She said the most important person you have to please in Hollywood is the director. Mm-hmm. So I would say her method was look at the script, understand what the director wants. She never let her ego get in the way. And that was an important thing. She, you know, if she came in and the sketch was in black and the director said, oh, I was thinking of it being in white, she would say, I, that's what I was thinking also. (laughs) There are people that did not like her there, you know, because, uh, Some felt, you know, behind the glasses, it looked very inscrutable, you couldn't tell. And and some of it was. It wasn't that she wasn't vulnerable, she certainly was. But to be vulnerable in Hollywood uh, would be almost an immediate dismissal. You have to have a thick skin. And she did. Even when she was put on on the uh, head of Hopper, put her on Hollywood's worst dress list. (laughs) She was crushed by it. People say she stayed in her office for for days, and it was really Bing Crosby who, you know, pulled her out of it. But that never happened on a set. It, it just didn't. She, you know, she would pick her battles, and they weren't really battles, but she would certainly come to the defense of the stars. She knew that her costumes looked only as good as the comfort level of the stars wearing them. And as her career is starting to get going, um, the Wall Street crash strikes. What impact did the Depression have on Hollywood and on costume designers in particular? I think in, in some aspects, it was a glorious time for Hollywood because people wanted to escape. Mm. They wanted to escape from their woes. They wanted to go into another world where there weren't uh, the traumas of what they were going through. So it became big escapism. 
that way with the Hollywood movie palaces. And then certainly, you know, things developed uh, during the war where fabrics were harder to get. There were uh, directives sent from the White House about what kind of styling, because people looked to the films as an indication of how they should dress. Mm -hmm. So they stopped doing cuffs on pants or flat pockets, you know, made them just slit pockets so there'd be less fabric being used. And Edith really uh, embraced that getting a a letter from FDR, she felt she was joining in Mm. and doing what she could for the war movement and for, hopefully, for the peace movement. So those things were really important to her. And again, the types of fabrics that were being used, silk was being used for parachutes, so they would redesign certain things in order for it to look as glamorous, but perhaps the fabric wasn't the fabric that might have been used uh, in another time. And I suppose that also relies on a good relationship with the director to say, well, this angle will not show that element of the costume that is makeshift or that lighting will help hide the tricks that I've done to make it look like it's silk when actually it's cotton. Yeah, and they never did makeshift. If you look at the quality of the fabrication, it's astounding, the Mm. type of really detail that was put into not only the parts of the costumes that would be seen, but the parts of the costumes that were underneath, that gave Mm -hmm. it the support, that gave it the line, that gave it the flow, that gave it the perfection of uh, those time periods of the, you know, the glory days Mm -hmm. of of Hollywood. Yeah, the prettiest period in motion pictures, she called that, that 30s era. Um, Was there any criticism of the lavish fashion amidst austerity nationally? I don't know. There might have been, but I don't know that anyone really made a note of that in that the pictures were really a way, as I said, of escaping. Mm. Even when I did the show in London and I stay as Edith at the end of the show and, and, you know, people would say, oh, Miss Head, and I put that in quotes, (laughs) you know, uh, thank you so much. During the war, when we would go to uh, the cinema and we would see gowns by Edith Head, it gave us a respite from being so much in what what we were in in the midst of, you know, the blitz and everything happening. So that part was pretty, you know, exciting. And remember, it, pictures didn't come out fast. Mm. In those days, it was from filming to the actual release, probably a couple of years easily. And uh, her husband, Bill, was a camouflage expert for the Army. So that was another thing that gave them really great, great uh, pride in them doing their part. They were, you know, they used cottons, you know, rather than the silk. They used synthetic materials. They were able to create the line and the look because of the fabrication of things. Mm. So it, it was really the genius. It was the illusion. And, and that's really what cinema is about. Yes. And she also gave interviews to magazines telling the public how to 
sew their own clothes, is that right? Oh, yeah. She, she was syndicated in the heyday in over 36 movie magazines. When the directive, there was a directive, it was called the L85, and it came out from FDR, you know, telling them what kind of uh, fabrics to use. And she really felt that it was up to her that everybody could learn to dress like the Hollywood stars, you know, that they could camouflage as well as she could camouflage. So she gave tips on on what to wear. She Her two books that she has, she always considered mm. herself to be the dress doctor. Oh, yes, that's the title so of one of them. she could analyze a person's figure and would analyze their wardrobe to what they were doing. Uh, first out in 1959, and then there uh, there was How to Dress for Success, which gave pointers to no matter what event you were going to. And interestingly, both books have been, within the last five, ten years, published. The V&A did one, one of their little uh, purple books, you know, was a, a republication of those two books of uh, Edith. Um, and she was also on TV, hmm. and she was also on radio. <laughs> so I mean, you so if yeah. the, if you if you were going to think of anybody who would be the ultimate fashion blogger, if she were alive yes. today, it would be Edith yeah, Head. Of course, yeah. And that personality that she had as well, that playfulness, would have would have well, really suited today. Well, that she learned. We interviewed Art Linkletter. Art Linkletter was perhaps the greatest interviewer next to you, of course. <laughs> uh, but he had the show, you know, House Party, started his radio and then went on TV, and he would have guest experts. Well, he had Edith on. She was so shy, you know, and hid behind her dark glasses. In fact, some of the mail she got, was, why doesn't that woman, you know, ditch those dark glasses or give her a tin cup so she can beg for money? I mean, they were not so nice. And she would give fashion tips. She would do makeovers. Before they coined the term makeover, right. Edith was doing it. Yeah. So she really learned from Art Linkletter of how to be comfortable in that persona of being Edith Head. And it was a persona. When she was at home, I mean, she, she worked six days a week, 16 hours a day. But when she was home, she could have gone, she and Bill could have gone to any A-list party. But they preferred to have kind of the intelligentsia of Hollywood. The, the Vincent Minnelli's come, the, the, where there were discussions, where uh, ideas were bantered back and forth. She didn't become great friends with any of her stars because she felt it could compromise. She did remain great friends with Alfred Hitchcock. Ann Baxter was a good friend. In fact, Ann Baxter's daughter, Melissa Galt, is uh, Edith's goddaughter. But she always kept their privacy, their secrets. They stayed in the salon. Mm. And if you were to pick out a film from that Depression era, what do you think was her most influential work? You know, really the, the films that she began to really design on her own really in the in the 40s uh definitely yeah Yeah, i mean those were chief designer at paramount from 38 wasn't it so right right so i mean it was late 30s Mm. in there 
Um, and, and it was 30 to 40 films a year. The most influential, if you're going to talk about the most influential, probably certainly all the road pictures. Okay. She loved the road pictures, even though not any of it was authentic. <laughs> she, she used to say if Bob Hope wanted to wear something because it was funny, he wore it. Right. The funnier and more bizarre it is, the more he liked it. And I point a picture of them, and they're in kilts. So what would the assumption be? Scotland. It would be something, Scotland, or, you know. Yeah. No, it was the road to Bali. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like, you know, it, was, it, it just was a different, different time. Whereas Bing Crosby was far more conservative in his dress. Bob would do, would do anything. I would say once we got into the early 40s, mm-hmm. the most influential uh, film that really, and it cemented her, um, her friendship with Barbara Stanwyck, would be The Lady Eve, mm. 1941, Preston Sturgis, um, Henry Fonda was in it. And up to that time, Barbara Stanwyck was, you know, she was not considered the glamour girl. It was what Edith did in her designs for Barbara that opened a whole new look for Barbara, who she called Missy. <laughs> and, and, and Barbara Stanwyck's nickname for Edith was Jughead. Jughead. <laughs> That's what she called her. But the Lady Eve was a glorious, it's a brilliant picture. It's, it's just a, a wonderful film. It has great humor, has great class, it has great fashion. I would say that was one of the most influential 1941 for the reasons of mm. really cementing a friendship with Barbara Stanwyck and also creating those great fashion looks. And you mentioned Alfred Hitchcock earlier yeah and just the year after the war notorious came out that was her first yeah began a 30-year collaboration with with hitchcock and they were they were indeed great friends and that film it has one of the sexiest one of the longest kisses between cary grant and ingrid bergman Yes. yes i mean it is it's not like it's obvious it's just so sensual. It, it's beautifully filmed. It's um, it's a wonderful, wonderful film. You know, and then, of course, there was, you know, Lady in the Dark, which was another great film in the 40s. But with uh, Hitch, you know, she designed for all the Hitchcock blondes. Mm. Grace Kelly in To Catch a Thief, of course, Rear Window, mm. one of the greatest fashion films ever and same with uh, To Catch a Thief, one of the greatest, greatest fashion films. Those looks, you could uh, walk out today <laughs> in, in many of those costumes. Yeah, yeah. Cary Grant always seems very attached to his suit, whether it's, whether it's there or in uh, uh, North by Northwest. Yes, he has, yeah. You know, but he, uh, Cary Grant could look good in anything. <laughs> <laughs> right? There's a funny story with uh, Sophia Loren when they did Houseboat. And they wanted a, a gold dress. Sophia played a, a maid, and they wanted a, a gold dress. Well, the fabric that was used ended up, when Cary Grant and she embraced, it got all over his dinner jacket, <laughs> right? And so they called Edith to run down. They had to take the, the, the fabric. It became impregnated kind of with the gold, 
And as Sophia Loren says, she looked like an Oscar, you know, but <laughs> they had to get a different dinner jacket for Cary Grant because it was covered in gold. Talking of the Oscars, um, the Academy only present the Costume Design Award for the first time in 1948, and Edith Head was to go on to win eight of them. But what prompted the Academy to introduce that award? It was Edith. It was Edith. Edith worked and worked to get the profession recognized. So it's like the first 21 years of the Academy Award, no category. So she worked and worked. It's the first one. She was nominated for the Emperor Waltz, which was turn-of-the-century Vienna. She said the only competition was Dorothy Jenkins and Joan of Arc. Everyone thought she would win. Mm-hmm. I mean, she was primed to win. She lost. That first year she lost, she was heartbroken. She was heartbroken. Mm-hmm. But she went on, and needless to say, she went on to win eight of them. <laughs> the next year she won for the heiress. 1950. Uh, and Olivia right? de Havilland, it was Olivia's, as she says, Livy's second Academy Award, mm-hmm. and it was Edith's first. And up till 1967, there were two categories. That's how some years she has won two, because there was a black and white category right. and there was a color category. Right. And then they merged them in 1967. Mm-hmm. How big a transition was that, black and white, to color for a costume designer? And how did Edith oh, manage huge. it? huge. The two big transitions, black and white to color, and silent films to talk. We're getting to Norma Desmond territory. Yeah, fabric (laughs) was, uh, you know, was, would rustle. Fabric would make noise. It didn't matter in a silent film, but it certainly mattered when things were mic'd. And then color, there were certain colors that look good. Like everybody thinks the All About Eve dress, the famous Betty Davis dress from All About Eve, bumpy night dress, people think it's it's black, but it was actually brown. Mm. It was a, a rich brown, which photographs magnificently in black and white. And part of the reason Edith had the blue tint in her glasses was so that she could see truer what color would look like in a black and white film. Let's talk a little about Gloria Swanston as uh, Norma Desmond, who is a star of the silent era trying to manage the transition to talkies, much as Edith Head had done. How did Head's wardrobe for her convey her personality? Well, it was so interesting because, you know, it was 1950, as Edith says, you know, she was a relative newcomer. She addressed a good number of stars, but Gloria Swanson was a living legend mm-hmm. and was a favorite of Banton and Greer, and they would say how savvy she was. She didn't realize till several months into the process that Gloria Swanson had requested Edith to do the film. And what Billy Wilder, when they were talking about the character, uh, Billy had said he wanted Norma Desmond to convey a feeling of the past, but he did not want to recreate it. He didn't want anything laughable or ridiculous. He wanted Norma Desmond to be a sad, a poignant person, a, a woman who didn't realize that she had passed her prime by nearly 30 years. Hmm. So what Edith did was add like a touch of the bizarre to each of the costumes. And that really enhanced that feeling that because Gloria Swanson was still gorgeous, 
you know, beautiful skin and a little, she wore a size two and a half shoe. <laughs> Can you imagine? As I say in the show, no, such, really a small, such a small base holding up such wow. enormous talent. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so she would add, you know, the leopard dress that was by the, the pool. And that film was up for 11 Academy Awards. And Edith wasn't even nominated for the costumes. And as she says, she didn't give, can I say damn? Yes, she didn't give a damn. (laughs) (laughs) But she didn't give a damn because the picture was that good, which is something for somebody who really, you know, loved every one of those golden boys. (laughs) Yes. Um, Wow. And I suppose around that time in the 50s, some critics said that she was merely the queen of the shirtwaist. What did that mean? Oh, it meant that certain like June Allison and even Rosie Clooney, you know, had that look. But as we talked about, you know, Edith was really a chameleon. Mm. She could design the most beautiful costumes for Grace Kelly in Rear Window, and she could make Grace Kelly look dowdy and depressed in the country one. So it, it was a wide spectrum. And you have to remember, in those days, there were no stylists. If somebody was going out and you were under contract to a studio, you went down to the costume designers, and they would dress you for the event or the appearance. And one of the gowns that Grace Kelly, when she won for the Academy Award in 1954, um, was a gown Edith designed. And it it made the cover of Life magazine. The first time fashion was on the cover of Life magazine. And it is always, to this day, up there with the top 10 red carpet looks of all time. Now, that says something about the timelessness. Yes. Now, that being said, also, when the film called for outrageous, like What a Way to Go, Shirley MacLaine... It was filled with campy, <laughs> and Edith, Edith designed that. There were, uh, I think, for Shirley MacLaine alone, 71 costumes. Her last Academy Award was for The Sting, Yeah, and it was the first time in the history of the Academy Awards that a Best Costume Design Oscar went to a film with no female star. Because it's Paul Newman you know. and it's uh, Robert Redford, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Well, I want to get on to the thing a little bit later, uh, Suze. I wanted to just talk a little bit more about her collaborations with directors and performers. Um, I wanted to find out how much autonomy she had with her designs. And maybe you could pick out um, an example or two that really showcased uh, how well Edith worked with directors and performers. Vertigo, which was filmed up in the Bay Area, of course. It was the first time Edith worked with Kim Novak. As we talked about, Hitch was very detailed in what he wanted as far as color of costume. She meets Kim Novak, and and Kim was lovely and said, Oh, Miss Head, it's such a privilege to work with you. I will do and wear anything except I never wear gray. Well, if you've seen the film, (laughs) the gray suit is iconic, and it was specifically called for by Alfred Hitchcock. Kim Novak leaves, 
Edith calls up Hitch, and she says, we've got a little challenge. Kim is lovely, but she says she won't wear gray. And Hitch said, work it out, Edith. (laughs) And so what she did was she got all these swatches. You know, there are all kinds of gray. There's blue gray, there's warm grays, there's pink grays. And she put all the swatches. She didn't care which gray was used. All she cared was (laughs) for the silhouette of the suit. So... Kim picked one of the fabric swatches. The G word was never mentioned, (laughs) and that suit is film history legend right there. And what about Edith's own fashion? How did she style herself? Did that enhance a portrayal of her character that she wanted to convey? Well, at work, she's a disciplined businesswoman. She wears simple clothes. She never wants to upstage the uh, stars she's dressing. But at home, it's a different story. She wears bright colors. (laughs) (laughs) At work, she would be in beige or gray. She never wore color on her nails because if you're standing and you're doing a fitting and somebody is at the mirror, Mm -hmm. you don't want them looking at your hands, right? So she always did that, and she came up with that look of, um, you know, in later years. I mean, she used to have it almost with like a Louise Brooks in the early days, but also, you know, pretty kind of severe, and then she would always have the look of the bangs, the glasses, and the chignon. That became her signature look. And how do you find, as a performer, getting into Edith's character and wearing wearing those clothes that are so iconic? Oh, it's fabulous. I mean, that's why I wear a full wig, <laughs> and I, I really go into the character, and um, it's a whole different walk. It's a whole different way of gesturing. It becomes a, a real transformation. Mm. As many times as I've done the show, which is probably over five 600 performances, I never tire of it because it's always new. Hmm. It's always exciting. It's always in the moment because the audience plays an integral part. People get to ask questions. They have to be time appropriate. I can't answer anything after 1981. So every show is different. Um, I think it was Betta Davis that said that it wasn't until she got into an Edith Head costume that she really felt she became the character. Oh, yeah. For um, All About Eve... In that dress, I mean, she would fling herself mm. on the, in the dressing room and make sure she would roll on the ground or she'd take her mink coat. As he just said, nobody can fling a mink coat <laughs> like Betty Davis can. Yeah. So they would try. For Catherine Hepburn, they had to put a sawhorse on when they were doing uh, Rooster Cogburn so she could get on you know, the saddle to make sure that the costume would work. And going to her last Academy Award victory, The Sting. Um, Yeah. A different sort of costume for Robert Redford and for uh, Paul Newman. How could you describe those and and what she did that made them so iconic in their costumes? There's an interesting story when Anthony Powell, a British uh, designer, costume designer, and Edith took him under her wing when, when he came to Hollywood and he had this fabulous fabric he was designing for Papillon, the film. And Edith thought, to, oh, this would be perfect. Can I buy some of this, Tony? Well, that was the pinstripe suit <laughs> that was there. 
And it looked different, of course, because it was totally different films. Well, there was a lot of controversy because when Edith won this Academy Award, she didn't credit Peter Salduti, and, uh, who they were head of the uh, Universal, the males, tailoring and all this. But like she says, you know, when, when something's wrong... We get the blame as the head of the costume yes. department. Isn't it right? If it, if, it, if it goes well, we shouldn't get the credit. <laughs> but she loved the two of them. Mm. She loved, she said, just imagine dressing or undressing the two most handsome men in the world and then getting this and she holds up her Oscar. <laughs> yes. yes, that's at the, I love, I love that speech because it's about yeah. 15 seconds long and she comes up uh, to the stage and the, that theme tune is playing, isn't it? And, yes. um, oh, it's, it's a wonderful moment, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> um, and we're approaching the end of our time now. Susan, I want to ask you, is it possible really to say how great her influence was on Hollywood costumes and by extension fashion more broadly? Yeah, she really put a face onto what a costume designer does. She helped found the Costume Designers Guild, which is the union. She really understood what the profession of costume design was back when everything was being created and not just shopped in stores Mm -hmm. or people were being styled. She, as we have talked about, played the game better than anyone. And there isn't a day that goes by that I don't get a Google alert that some designer has mentioned Edith or attributes their success to Edith or Edith was an inspiration when a 21-year-old young graphic designer chooses to do a Google Doodle for Edith's head that talks about the scope of the influence that she has had really in the world of costume design in the cinema and also just about, you know, as she said, you can have anything you want in life as long as you dress for it. And I think that kind of sums it all up, and that you shouldn't follow fads. Your true fashion comes from the inside out. And that's why it's such a great and affirming message for young people, because it truly is an understanding that, It's what's inside that manifests in what you choose to show the world. Well, that's a lovely place to leave it, Suze. Thank you so much for joining me. It's been great fun talking to you. Oh, what a delight. Oh, it's been great. Thank you, Suze. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Stanford and the 20th Century. If you enjoyed this podcast, please remember to rate, review and subscribe. Join me next time when I'll be hearing about the extraordinary life of the LGBTQ activist, Harry Hay, from two of his closest friends. Thanks for listening.